Welcome to our After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. If you work in education and looking to improve or develop your skills, then this podcast is here to help you. Welcome to the After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors, and today we are carrying on to discuss education and looking to improve or develop your skills. I'm Georgie, Director of Learning and Development for the Classroom Partnership. Thirsty Scholars Partnership is part of the Classroom Partnership, a collective group of education service providers who have been providing whole school recruitment, professional development and education support in the UK and internationally since 1999. In today's episode, we return to Barack Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction, which are recognised internationally as providing a clear and simple framework to support teachers who seek to embed their teaching practice in the world of cognitive science. Rosenstein's principles are celebrated widely as they provide a bridge between research and classroom practice. His principles are short, easy to read and insightful. I'm joined today by Helen and Andy. Again, Helen's a previous head of school and Andy a current deputy principal and are both lead associates of the Thirsty Scholars Partnership. And they use Rosenstein's principles instruction when working with teachers internationally to support developing classroom practice. Helen and Andy's discussions around Rosenstein's principles provide anecdotes and tips whilst they share experiences and observations from within the educational environment. We've focused on a number of previous episodes around um, principles, Rosenstein's principles of instruction, and uh, we've covered the first six steps. So if you want to, you can go back and listen to those on our previous podcasts. And in today's episode, we're actually going to unpack step seven, which is around obtaining a high success rate. So can I start by handing over to Helen? Before we actually dig dig deeper, can you actually focus in and uh, give us an overview of the previous six steps, Helen? Okay, hi Georgie, hi Andy, Um, it's great to see you again. Um, Just a quick overview of of the previous six steps. Um, As you know, the first one was daily review. Um, Number two was presenting new material using small steps. Number three was asking questions. Number four was providing models. Five was guiding student practice. And six was checking for students' understanding. It feels a little bit like top of the pops when I read them like that. Thank you so much, Helen. So, Andy, do you have any kind of key reflections on those before we move on at all? I think for me, as we've kind of, as you said, we've recorded six now and we're really starting to see how they, as much as they are standalone um, principles, they're really quite closely interlinked. Um, So where we're looking today at obtaining a high success rate in particular, that kind of fits into the stages of practice section. So um, we've already recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago on obtaining, uh, sorry, on guiding student practice um, and then in a few weeks uh, step nine will be independent practice that we'll look at in a couple of episodes so that's really where this um, obtaining a high success rate fits into within the overall strands. Thank you so much for uh, introducing that so beautifully Andy. So uh, Rosenshine just uh, to give a a brief introduction refers um, to obtaining a high success rate 
um, around sort of studies that showed more effective teachers set questions and tasks um, to en engineer a high success rate, but not necessarily 100 percent. And we'll touch on that um, in uh, shortly in these discussions. So they they're aiming at an optimum level of around 80 percent success rate, which sounds quite interesting. Um, so the idea being is that 80% most of, the, of what students are doing is reinforced and error free. Um, so what does it actually mean? Who can I uh, hand that over to first? OK, um, I'll make a start and then maybe Andy can can pick up. But I think, you know, when when you're teaching, uh, one of the things that you're always trying to do is work out um, how many students have got it and how well students are learning. And as a teacher, what you want to, to work out is that most of the students are learning really well in the classroom. So to be able to do that, what you're doing generally in a lesson is, you know, you're circling the room, you're asking questions, you're looking at students work, you're listening to them and you're listening to their responses. And in an ideal world, what what Rosenshine is saying is, you need probably about 80% or eight out of 10 of those students within your class to be actually getting it. Um, because if they're at about 80%, it means that they're learning the right things and they're beginning to learn those things really well. Um, Andy, I don't know if you want to, to come in there. Yeah, I mean, the 80% figure came from, um, it was quite a small scale study that Rosenshine did looking at um, fourth grade maths teachers um, and in his study he found that the most effective maths teachers had a success rate of 82 percent the least effective had a success rate of 73 percent so he used that as his benchmark and then he kind of dig, dug a little bit deeper into looking at what those teachers were doing in the classroom to um, to achieve those figures so we could kind of build that into the recommendations of the classroom practice and um, said so his figures were 82 73 it's not an exact science, you know, you, you're never going to kind of think, right, I need to get exactly to 80% success rate before I move on. But it's it's a benchmark, it's a guideline. Um, and interestingly, that, that was quite a small scale study, but this figure of 80% kind of comes up in different research studies as well. So um, it was quite a big study done by Washington University that was looking at um, the design of multiple choice questions and assessments and Again, their research came up with this ideal optimum figure of 80% being a great benchmark to know that you've designed a really effective multiple choice assessment. Um, I, I think one of the one of the things that's really interesting with um, this obtaining high success rate is this idea of the link between motivation and success. Um, and you know, perhaps we we're used to thinking that motivated students become successful students and, and they learn because they're motivated but actually the reverse can be true as well and having some success in the classroom can then increase a student's motivation and then that becomes a really productive circle so the link between those ideas of motivation and success are really key I think in, in our understanding of this. Yeah, thank you, Andy, for that. I think that the concept of the, the circle of motivation, so it's sort of a, a cyclical process also, is, is really, really quite insightful. So what what do we think, what things can teachers actually do in the classroom to achieve this 80% um, success rate? OK, I'll pick that one up. Um, I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? 
Um, I think one of the things, and this is where you start to see the, the links really become clear between the principles that teachers can do is make sure that they present new material in small steps so that students are, are taking really positive small steps forward. They're building some success. That success then breeds more success, like Andy said, and really kind of starts to increase um, students' motivation. So I think for me, kind of that's really, really powerful. Um, and then I think one of the things that we've talked about again when we've talked about the principles is as well as taking those small steps, students need to make sure that they undergo some practice with the small steps and, and that needs to be supervised. And that's where the next part really kicks in because it's really important that the, the teacher checks student understanding before moving on to that next step. So ultimately, you know, the two best ways to do it are the teacher presents new information in small steps, gives the students a chance to practice and then checks the extent to which they understand. Um, Andy? Yeah, no, I think that it's it's really clear and logical, isn't it? Like that, you know, the, the steps that we've looked at before, Rosenstein's almost saying if we get those things right, it will lead to this high success rate. So I think it's, it's quite straightforward to, for us to implement that. I think um, the bit that can be more challenging is thinking about having really high expectations for your students. So it, it links into um, the idea of the Pygmalion effect and Rosenthal and Jacobson's research that we know that student expectations have a positive um, influence on student performance. So if we've got really high expectations of all of our students, they're more likely to meet them. Um, so even if 80% success rate sounds a huge amount, it sounds almost unachievable, we shouldn't lower those expectations. We need to aim that high. And Rosenstein's really clear when he talks about his 80% success rate that that's across your class. This shouldn't be a small number of students achieving 100% and that propping up a class average where actually a lot of students are at a much lower rate than that. We're striving for everybody in the group to hit that 80% because um, what we know about the Pygmalion effect is that the opposite is also true, that we've got the Gollum effect. And if teacher expectations of their students aren't high enough, then student performance will be negatively affected. I think it's just really interesting when Andy talks about that as well and talks about the impact of expectations, because that will come into play quite a lot when we look at the next um, principle in the next podcast. And we start to talk about scaffolding. Um, and, you know, again, we need as teachers to work to the highest common denominator, not to the lowest. And then we need to scaffold down to students to then lift them up um, rather than, you know, give them a, a task that is too easy because the impact that that has um, is, you know, is, is really detrimental. And I think, you know, if, if you kind of take that idea that Andy talked about, about 80% being over time, I think there's sometimes a real danger that, you know, somebody sees a figure like 80% and then starts to try and measure um, whether it's 80% with a tick list in a classroom. And again, that's counterproductive because ultimately what this is about is, is teachers, you know, helping students to be successful listening really carefully to their responses, um, you know, 
putting in some some interventions and checking their understanding to help them to get to that 80 percent rather than the 80 percent being a you know a stick to beat anybody with it it needs to be a carrot a hundred percent i don't think this would work at all if this was a head of department or a senior leader in a school trying to use that 80 percent to measure staff by like that that's just a recipe for disaster but if it's a figure that teachers have got in mind for their own classes um i think it's really powerful and it links quite nicely to um we've talked before about the idea that brains are malleable they're plastic like um students ability isn't fixed and you know the, the links with neuroscience between the principles and how how learning works and how the brain works the science of learning i think are really um key that, that teachers have got that understanding of that yeah thank you andy and and i think also that um being clear as we've said throughout all of these principles of instruction is that actually this is a guide and a support to help teachers it's not something that should be sort of as as we're suggesting a tick box and some as an observation tool it's it's to help sort of provide effective structure um, and inform sort of great practice within the classroom so it's great to hear you kind of revert back to those statements and I think from from my understanding of obtaining a high success rate it, it's actually a good way of indicating whether you need to add further depth if your if your students are, are achieving too early or or getting nearer 100 percent sort of much higher levels it means that actually you've got more depth and challenge to actually implement in your classes you can stretch them a bit further um so uh, that's a good indication isn't it actually a, a measure of where you are within your curriculum and your scheme of work um around that so um, i'm looking forward to discussing all the scaffolding elements as well because i think that will be uh, a really helpful and powerful sort of conversation so um wrapping up around sort of the the actual um concept of obtaining a high success rate fundamentally how does this principle really help a teacher i think for me it it helps because having that figure in mind it stops you from just plowing on with your teaching and plowing on with the curriculum and the content it helps you to pause and think actually have the students learn what i've been teaching because if they haven't then that, that's not been effective classroom practice and we maybe either need to revisit it or look at our explanations look at did we question enough was there enough modeling before the independent practice um so it can help us reflect on that sequence um of teaching and i think there's a, a bit of a, a danger when we're all so busy um and, and classroom teachers are so busy that we don't pause to reflect or we think about um you think oh i'll tweak that the next time i teach it but actually if you don't stop and reflect at the time then that's much less effective to then reflect in 12 months like um so kind of linking to um some of the work of donald sean and um reflecting in action as well as reflecting on action i think that's really fundamental that teachers try and do that to guide their next steps in what they teach I think linked to that as well, Andy, I mean, I think that's such a good point about teachers reflecting in action rather than on and, you know, making those changes and adapting things in the moment. I think linked to that, I think for me, um, you know, it, that process when you're seeking to uh, obtain that high success rate of checking students understanding is really key 
because if they're plowing down the wrong track and they're making lots of errors and they're learning the wrong things, then if the teacher doesn't check, then you're almost embedding those errors, those misconceptions in that long term memory. And one of the things that we know is that unlearning things that have been learned is probably one of the most challenging things of all for students. So I think for me, this can really help teachers to make sure that they're checking really carefully. They're intervening at the point of, of need. And, you know, they're pausing. And like Andy said, you know, reteaching, re-explaining, remodeling things um, to, to support students at the point when they actually need it and when it will have the biggest impact. I think, like Andy said, if you're doing that always retrospectively, um, then that can be, again, quite demoralising for students because they're almost not obtaining the high success rate. They're building on a culture of, of, of failure in some respects at that point. Absolutely. And I think that leads on to um, the concepts around, you know, what, what might be the challenges around focusing in on obtaining a high success rate? I think for me, one of the challenges is that balance of, as a teacher of knowing that there's a whole curriculum in front of you, that you've got limited time with your students, that you can't spend forever on one topic. Um, and, and there's that balance between taking the time to reflect, pause, reteach, go over the material. Um, but also you've got that awareness that you need to keep moving because you've, you've got an end point, you've got an exam that you're working towards or an assessment. So that's probably um, a real challenge for us. But the danger is that we just plough on with the content to get through it, but there's not much learning taking place. So although it seems um, kind of difficult or worrying to take that time and reteach something, actually the the gains in a student's assessment would be significant, so at least in that section that you've taught, their scores should be much higher rather than just ploughing on teaching content, regardless of the amount of learning that's taken place. I think as well, you know, linked link to that, um, it's tempting, isn't it? We always want like 100%. Um, it's in our nature that we look at 80% and think it's not good enough. Um, but actually 100% isn't always helpful because at 100% of students obtaining that success rate, um, you would ask about kind of the level of challenge in that lesson or the extent to which students are, are grappling um, with content or concepts or making mistakes. And one of the things that we know with, you know, particularly with growth mindset is that making mistakes um, and being able to respond to challenges is really helpful for students. And, and teaching them how to grapple with difficult things um, is also really important. So, you know, although the 100% is really appealing, um, it also comes with a bit of a health warning as well. Absolutely. I think, it, you know, that there's indication around the growth mindset that in order to succeed, the students do need to approach challenge with a positive attitude. Um, and learn from their mistakes as well. So absolutely, it's, it's key to make sure that there's continuous stretch and challenge throughout um, and that they're not just performing at the, the basic level that they should be. 
So we're at a point now, I think, where we probably will wrap up today because we're going to focus in on uh, scaffolding for next week, which is really exciting. And I'm looking forward to discussing those. Helen, would you like to share with us what one key takeaway would you have um, from our discussions today? So I think uh, one of the things that really resonated during today's session was listening to Andy. And I think my key takeaway comes from something he said, which is, you know, don't be scared um, to pause, reteach, re-explain um, if you think that students are really missing the mark or they're not getting it. I think the key thing for me is that teachers constantly check understanding and are brave enough to adapt their teaching in the moment rather than ploughing on with something that isn't working. And I think in subjects where it's really content heavy, um, it's tempting just to keep pushing forward. Yet that bravery to just pause is absolutely key to obtaining that 80% success rate. So that would probably be my, my big takeaway. So thank you to Andy for that one. So thank you, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Making sure that we're being brave when we're teachers as well. Andy, what would your uh, key takeaway would be? I think for me, it would be um, about that link between success and motivation and the fact that um, achieving 80% success rate can seem really challenging for us as teachers and for the students. But if we get them there, then that will build the motivation. And as you talked about that, cyclical approach um, to learning is then really powerful. I think one thing that we probably don't do enough of is getting the students to acknowledge their success. So when they have met that um, that challenge, when they've reached that 80% or the, you know, the figure around 80% that you're aiming for, getting the students to acknowledge that, that they've achieved something really positive, that they've really learned and mastered a concept, that in itself is really powerful and that helps with um, the confidence and builds the motivation to keep that learning moving forwards. I always love the uh, concept of making sure that you celebrate success as well. So, um, and always these podcasts are such a uh, great fun to actually do and and check in with you guys and your your expert knowledge. So, thank you again today for our experts, Helen and Andy. Certainly, my key takeaways are around sort of making sure that we pause to reflect, and I'm going to take some of that away today as well. Um, and uh, make sure that you intervene at the point of uh, of impact, at the most effective point of impact when you're in the classroom, um, ultimately supporting the students and, and being brave and able to go back and uh, reflect on things if you need to. So uh, some great key points today that uh, both Helen and Andy have shared with us. Um, so next week we will be unpacking and discussing the next steps, which is providing scaffolding for difficult tasks. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to sort of focusing in on that area because there's so much that we can share with you around that. Um, Rose and Shine shares that it's important for students that they learn cognitive strategies um, and also that they need scaffolding, but ensuring that the scaffolds are only temporary so that they become a habit and a formation. And examples of paragraph um, sort of scaffolds are things like point evidence explained. So we'll unpack some of those next week. Um, and I'm um, looking forward to talking about those in much further detail. You've been listening to After the Bell podcast brought to you by Thirsty Scholars and they're released on a weekly basis and provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational, whether you're on your commute in the car, cooking with dinner or walking the dog. 
for or focus of the day. Thank you very much for joining us again today. And thank you to our experts, Helen and Andy. And we look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thank you.